morning, everyone. Please stand with us. Sing to the King is coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the Sudden, 
How's everybody doing? Hi, Malachi. Do you have something you would like to say? Happy Father's Day. There we go. There we go. All right, you can go sit down. Thank you, buddy. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. We are glad that you are here to worship our Heavenly Father, who indeed loves us. Amen? Aren't you thankful for His love? While you're standing, take a moment and welcome those around you.
right, you may return to your seats. Uh, sure. Uh, you may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Northside Baptist Church. We're so thankful that you're here to worship with us. If this is your first time, just want to extend a special welcome uh, to you. We're glad to have you as our visitor, our guest. If this is your first time, if you would please let us know that. There's a couple ways you can do that. There's a QR code inside the bulletin. You can scan if you're tech savvy, fill out some things online, or we got an old-fashioned Connect card out there that you can just fill out um, on your way out and turn that in uh, to the ladies that you will see um, out there. So fathers, we are very, very thankful for you. I know some of you are blessed like me. You grew up with a father that loved you and was there for you. And maybe some of you, you didn't have that. But the good news is, as I already said, we have a heavenly father that loves us unconditionally, that cares for you deeply. And our prayer is that you would know that love of our heavenly father. We do want to recognize our dads though. So if you are a dad, would you just please stand for a moment so we can recognize you and express our appreciation to you. All right. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Well, we had an incredible week of, of camp. Your leaders are probably tired and exhausted, um, but it was an incredible week. Everybody got home in one piece, to my knowledge, um, and so praise the Lord for that. Uh, I know at least at Snowbird, uh, there were some powerful messages, um, and our kids were challenged to, uh, to know the gospel, to learn and know how to study God's word, and then to know their identity in Jesus Christ. Um, and I know our kids had an incredible time at their camp as well. Let me just mention a couple of announcements to you. Our baby bottles are due back today. I forgot to send a reminder message about that. So if you don't have your baby bottles today, you can bring them Wednesday. You can even bring them next Sunday, and then we'll turn them in. But uh, they're up here. If you hadn't grabbed a bottle yet, grab one and fill it up and bring it back Wednesday. Our senior friends will have their monthly meeting and cover dish luncheon this Thursday, June 22nd. We need you to sign up. If you're coming, please sign up so that they know how much food to prepare. we got our watermelon social next Sunday night. That's always an incredible fun time, so be here for that. Uh, we have a Sweet 16 uh, that's being hosted um, for Isabella and Aaron. And so we, we do that once the school year is over. If you turn 16 at some point in that previous school year, we celebrate our girls, the time to pour into them. So ladies, this is for you to come. Even if you don't know the two of them, just come. Your presence there, just supporting them, just praying over them, learning more about them so that you know how to pray for them. Um, please put that on your calendar and, and come to that. VBS, there's several announcements about Vacation Bible School. You need to sign up. Um, if you want to bring snacks for the, the teachers and the workers and the leaders, uh, you can sign up out there on the board. Also, there are tags uh, for some juice and a couple other things for the kids. Grab those tags off of the bulletin board on your way out and then bring those items back. That would be awesome. There's also an announcement in there about Mission Dignity. So Mission Dignity is one of the ministries uh, that Southern Baptists support. Um, it comes un under the umbrella of Guidestone. And our church, we send a monthly amount every month to Mission Dignity. But we also want to give you an opportunity to give specifically to mission dignity. And I'll tell you how you can do that, but some of you may be thinking, what is mission dignity? So we got about a two-minute video that explains the ministry of mission dignity, and then I'll come back up and explain how you can give. So check out this video. 
I was young, and now I'm old. Yet, I have never seen. Yet, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. After Wendell passed away, I knew it was going to be very difficult for me to pay all my bills. I got a telephone call letting me know that I had been accepted in, by Mission Dignity. It was such a burden lifted off of my shoulders. There are no words really to explain what Mission Dignity has meant to me. As uh, Hispanic pastors, we, we struggle a lot. When we first uh, learned uh, about Mission Dignity, we were very, very, very happy. What I thought is that somebody cares. Somebody cares after all these years of service, as somebody is giving us a hand. For several years, the little church we started didn't pay us anything. And yet we felt that's where God wanted us and where we were supposed to be. And so you do it because of the calling, not because of the money. Knowing that mission dignity is there is just gives us a great peace. Takes a lot of stress off. Mission Dignity serves more than 2,500 retirement-aged ministers, workers, and widows as they face advancing age, illness, infirmity, the death of a spouse, and even natural disasters. Through it all, we provide constant care, prayer, and financial assistance directly at the point of need. Thank you for giving to Mission Dignity. You make a big difference in our daily lives. Thank you. God bless you for all that you do for us. So Mission Dignity Sunday is actually next Sunday, but I will not be here. I will be in Ecuador. So I wanted to emphasize that today. And so I'm going to encourage you to give. Um, some of you maybe grew up in a church where you had a, a bivocational pastor or in a small church where you just couldn't pay them a lot. And, and so Mission Dignity now helps these retired pastors or their widows, their spouses, to be able to get groceries, pay for medical bills, medicines. And so we give as a church to this every month. We have a certain amount per year that we give. But I want to encourage you to give. So on your way out, there are envelopes at the, the welcome desk, the connection desk there. You can take one of these envelopes. You can write a check. Uh, to Mission Dignity, the instructions are here. You can put cash in there, and it is no postage necessary if mailed to the United States, and you're in the United States, so it costs you nothing to mail it. So you can just mail it. There was also a number that popped up on the screen that you can give to a text message. You can Google that and probably find that online if you want to be real tech savvy. But I want to encourage you to give because you're making a difference in, what, 2,500-plus others who are applying that want to be added on and want to receive this help. It's an incredible ministry, and I want to encourage you to be part of that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll continue to worship the Lord together. Let's pray. Father God, we're here this morning because of your providence, because of your goodness and your grace in our lives. And we are here because more than likely there was a pastor at some point 
who shared the gospel with us or who preached the word of God faithfully week in and week out. And Lord, you use the preaching of your word, that loving kindness of that shepherd to, to bring us, Lord, to a place where we begin to love you and follow you and serve you. And then here we are years later. And God, I'm thankful that I serve a congregation that loves their pastor well and that provides for their pastor well. So God, that when I'm older and get to the point of retirement, Lord, I'm going to be able to, to make ends meet. I'm going to be able to, to, to get what I need to get. But there are many men and their spouses who, Father, when they retired, were struggling. They didn't have a lot. They weren't able to draw from a retirement or have very little Social Security. And so, Father, this ministry, the, the giving of your people to support the men and their wives who are faithful to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, to love on our hearts and souls so well. God, this ministry makes a difference. And I pray that you would just impress upon the individual's hearts this morning to give, maybe not this month, but to give next month or in two months, whenever they can, just to send a special one-time offering, Father, to Mission Dignity so that it can impact many, many more people. Father, we love you, and we're thankful, as we've already said, for your love as the Heavenly Father. We're thankful for the love of fathers that you have put in our life, thankful for the men that you have placed in our life. And so, fathers, we continue just to sing, as we sing faith of our fathers, as we sing, God, of your grace and of your glory, as we sing, as the choir sings about a wonderful, merciful Savior. Father, just draw our hearts to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and let's continue to worship.
Amen. Thank you, choir. All right, at this time, our kids are going to make their way out for Children's Church. Everyone else, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. Esther chapter 1. Do you have anybody in your life who will protect you? Who will take one for the team? Who will try to keep you safe? In our text this morning, we're going to see the king doesn't do a very good job of protecting his, his wife, Queen Vashti. On Tuesday morning, our group went down the Nantahala. And I was in a raft, a no-pirating raft meaning you couldn't come try to throw us out and all that good stuff. I just wanted a nice, chill ride down uh, the, 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 the water there. And so in my boat was Miss Andy and Miss Gina and Anna Marie. And up front was Catherine and Ariel. Now, Catherine asked if she could get a shout-out during the sermon. It's not going to be during the sermon. It's pre-sermon. But Catherine and Ariel were up front. And so anytime the water would come splashing in the boat, it would hit them and not me because I was in the back. So thanks for uh, taking one for the team, and there's your shout-out, Catherine. <laughs> She's probably embarrassed, but you got to be careful what you ask for, because your pastor will do it. All right, Esther chapter 1. As we work our way through these verses, I'm just going to give you three headings. Three headings that will kind of guide us. Esther is a narrative. It's a story. And so we're just going to look at this story unfold. Our students this week at camp, we're looking at the life of Joshua. Uh, and, and not Joshua, Joseph. Um, and, and the story just kind of unfolds. And so they heard a lot about Joseph and pointed to the gospel, and it was incredible. And so we're just going to see the story of Esther unfold. So the first heading is Drunk King, a drunk king. We were introduced last week to this king, Ahasuerus. And so we kind of focus in on him again in verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> on the seventh day, now remember, the king had thrown a feast for 180 days, then he followed that up with the seventh-day feast. So this is the seventh day of that feast. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, almost every commentator based upon the Hebrew there says it means he was drunk. The king was, was drunk. He commanded, and there's a bunch of names here, seven of them, Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So the king has been drinking for seven days. He's not in a capacity to think straight. And what he does is he sends these seven guys to go get his wife, the queen, and command her to come to him. Now, what does he want? Well, what he wants to do is to further show off his greatness. Go back to verse 4 of chapter 1. While he showed, he displayed the riches of his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. He's showing off all that belongs to him. Now look at verse 11, same language. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show or to display he sees his wife as a trophy wife and he wants to bring her she's very beautiful lovely to look at he wants to bring her parade her in front of these drunken men now what i'm going to do along the way is i'm going to kind of take a time out and i'm going to show you what some other people have preached when you come to some of these verses and and when you're when you're this is so important when you're studying god's word 
you, through the Spirit of God who is who has written the word, brought the word to us, who has preserved the word, the Spirit of God who's working in your heart, you are to come to what is the main point of each passage. What's the main point? Now, along the way, there may be some side points that you can apply. What's the main point? So I'm going to get to the main point. That's going to be heading number three. But along the way, I'll point out some side points that some people have preached. Some people take these two verses and preach an entire sermon against alcohol and drunkenness. I'm not going to preach an entire sermon on alcohol and drunkenness. King Ahasuerus' judgment obviously would have been impaired. And according, this is fascinating to me, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, this would have been intentional. The Persians believed that when you get drunk, it put you in better touch with the spiritual world. So they would intentionally get drunk because they believed they would be closer to the spiritual world. And here's what they also believed. They believed some of their best decisions were made while they were drunk. So they would get drunk. They would make decisions. They would sober up. If they liked the decisions they made when they were drunk, they would keep them. Some of you have had a history of alcohol in your life. And you know how ignorant and stupid that thought is. Nothing good comes when you are drunk the scripture is clear that drunkenness is a sin it's foolish and so some preach an entire sermon on drunkenness it's a side point you can make that application but that is not the main point therefore that's all i'm going to say about that but it sets this up because we got a drunk king who is not in his right mind when he summons queen vashti to come so that's heading number one drunk king heading number two we have a defiant queen a defiant queen verse 12 but queen vashti or vashti i'm going to say vashti say it how you would like to say it if you like vashti and it frustrates you every time i say that that's just the way i'm going to say it refuse to come at the king's command because that's how the lady on my esv bible app says it vashti so i'm just going to go with that but queen vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs so she refuses so who is Vashti? Well, the Greek historian Herodotus, again, helps us a lot with this. He mentions that Ahasuerus had a wife by the name of Amestris. So, okay, how do we reconcile this? Well, some people think that Amestris may have been the Persian name and Vashti would have been her Greek name. That's possible. Others would say the only reason Herodotus mentions Amestris is because many times, as they're talking about history, they only mention, because these kings could have had multiple, multiple wives. Well, you see that in, in the Bible, right? That they only mention the wife who would have had the son who was the heir to the throne. And that would have been, right, this other woman that, that Herodotus mentions, a mistress. She was the mother of King Artaxerxes, who follows his father Xerxes or Ahasuerus. And so some people want to say, well, Vashti and Esther are not mentioned in history, therefore this story is not historical and real, and I don't buy that. I think you can explain some of those things as to why maybe she wasn't mentioned. Because in history, maybe she is unimportant. But in biblical history, she's vital to what is about to happen. And so why is she to come? Because the king wants to show off her beauty a trophy wife and she refuses the king's command why the scripture doesn't tell us we don't know why she doesn't come 
We can provide theories. We can have these conversations. I'll provide you with three that came up the most in the commentaries. One is the rabbinic interpretation. This is what the rabbis would believe. They believe that when he summons her to come in a crown, she is coming only in a crown and wearing nothing else. To be paraded in front of a bunch of drunk men. I can understand why she would say, uh, yeah, no thanks, not coming. Now, if you don't believe that, then others would say maybe there was some sort of blemish, something that was going on in her and she just did not want to be in front of men. Okay? But the third answer to me is just as logical, and that would be whether she was clothed or not clothed, she didn't want to be paraded in front of a bunch of men who had been drinking. Karen Jobes in her commentary makes the point, this would not have been a safe place for Queen Vashti to be in front of a bunch of drunk men who were just going to lust after her, who are drunk, can't control themselves. Like, who would want to be in that position? And so she refuses. Now, what have others preached? Some, and this is not the way you preach this text, but some, in their commentaries and in their preaching, if they have more of a left liberal bent, will take the approach of preaching this passage from a feminist approach. And what they do is they try to pit Vashti against Esther. Karen Jobes, again in her commentary, is very helpful, talks about one way that we often preach is through an exemplary style of preaching. So you come to a passage like Joseph or like King David, and you say, okay, who were they, and how can we follow them as an example, good or bad? And that's how people preach the Bible. That's not how we preach the Bible. Yes, they are examples. Yes, we can learn from them. But there's always something deeper going on that's ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ. So some people pit Vashti against Esther. Again, Karen Jobes in her commentary writes this. In this century, Esther continues to be a heroine to some. To us, Esther's the hero. But she says, But Esther has fallen into disfavor with many feminist interpreters because she did not assert herself against what is viewed as male domination. In comparison to Esther, Vashti's refusal to obey the king is applauded as an admirable attack on patriarchy. So for some, Esther's not the hero. Vashti's the hero because she stood up to her husband and said enough is enough. Where Esther just went along with the game, did what she had to do and became queen. So why do I bring that up? Because when you're studying God's Word, when you're hearing somebody preach or speak or teach, you need to understand that not everybody is teaching accurately. Just because you hear it doesn't mean it's true. So you need to go to the Word of God. You need to cry out to the Spirit of God and say, what is true? Point me to what is true. That's not true. But yet you'll come across that in some of the commentaries. So let me make a side point that I think is helpful. The king here did a despicable thing. Despicable. There's no denying that. He sought to use his wife as nothing more than a trophy. And the author's driving that point home. How do we know that? Because in chapter 1 alone, here's how the author refers to things. The royal throne, the royal wine, the royal palace, a royal decree. What's the point? The king rules, and it all belongs to him. It's his. Therefore, he's saying royal. And then what, is, what does he say in verse 11? He talks about the royal crown. 
How does the king view his wife? As nothing more than property. It's the way many men viewed their wives in that day. They're just property. And he's subjecting her to a bunch of drunken men, and that is disgraceful. So if you want to say, okay, what can we learn here? Is there an example we can follow? Don't be like the king. Men, don't view your wives as just property. Like they're they're yours to control and do what you want. Instead, look to King Jesus, who treated women better and differently than anyone who walked on the face of the earth. You want to know how to treat somebody? Look to Jesus. He's the example as to how we are to treat people. Let me quote Karen Jobes again. It's very helpful in this. In Esther 1, 13 through 22, respect is demanded from the Persian men by order of a royal decree. Respect is demanded and they will issue a decree to make sure they get the respect. In Ephesians 5, respect is to be the response of a woman toward a man who loves her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want a point of application? Men, fathers on this Father's Day, you want your children to respect you, you want your wife to respect you, you don't get that respect by demanding it. You get it by earning it, by loving them as Christ loved the church. And if you're willing to lay down your life for your wife, she will come to respect you. You don't have to demand it. You just love her as Christ loves her, and she will respect you. Your children are going to be disrespectful. That's what they do. They're kids. They have to learn. And we love them. And we teach them. And we we just keep modeling the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. And as they see that, they will come to respect us. So maybe that's helpful to you. That's a side point, but it's not the main point. We're going to get to the main point. Keep holding on. So what is the fallout of Vashti's defiance. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Uh Uh-oh, we have a drunk king who is now an enraged and angry king. And those two never go well together. And so here's what else we're going to learn about the king. This king has no self-control and he is incapable of making decisions on his own. Anybody, anybody kind of know what that's like. You're going to go go out uh, maybe for lunch today, and you're going to look over at your wife, and you're going to say, hey, where do you want to go? And she's going to say, I don't know. I don't care. Like, never, they just can't ever make decisions. You're like, come on, you got to make a decision, right? He can't make decisions. Every time something comes up, he runs to this council, and he says, hey, you make the decision for me. So that's what happens. Verse 13, we're going to read through this quickly. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being, here we go, seven more men with different names, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin. Why couldn't everybody just be named like Matthew and Aaron and John and Mark? And Why do we got to have all these crazy names? The seven princes of of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. And here's what he wants to know. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? What do we do to her? Just a little bit of irony. The king is trying to control an entire kingdom, and he can't even control his own wife. 
And he's realizing that, right? He's probably angry. He's probably embarrassed. So what are we to do with her? So he reaches out to these wise men, and here's what they say. This one guy, Mamukin, however you say that name, for some reason takes Vashti's disobedience very personally. And so here's what he says. He said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. I think he overreacts a little bit. It's like, look, king, she hasn't just done this against you. She's done this against us seven men. She's done this against all the men who are on the face of the earth. Like, this is a big deal, king. You need to understand that. And so he continues. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, Then there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. So here's the deal. Queen Vashti rebels, disobeys, and the men are like, "Uh uh-oh, all women are going to rebel against their husbands. She's going to be the example. When we go home from this long party, my wife, whenever I ask her to do something, is now going to say, no, I'm not going to do it because of Queen Vashti. A little bit of overreaction. A lot of bit of overreaction. Like, word's going to begin to spread. What's ironic is by them issuing this royal decree, guess what happens? Word probably spreads quicker. Had they just said nothing, right, things probably don't go get out of hand. But they, they overreact, and so now here's what happens. The king goes along and issues a decree that, according to verse 19, cannot be repealed. The king in his intoxicated state, issues a decree that banishes his queen. When I read that, I think of Monsters, Inc., right? You know, when the abominable snowman gets banished. Like, I just think of the queen being banished, like she's gone, no longer to wear the crown, no longer to be his wife. And it says they are to give it to another who is better than she. And I think I agree with the commentaries. That may simply mean one who is more obedient than she. One who submits more than she does. So just another side point. A couple more side points before we get to the main point. The king believes he can legislate respect through brute force in a royal decree. Listen, we have laws in this country. The Bible speaks of the government, the authority, needing to issue laws that seek to promote the good and then punish the evil. Look, we need good laws. Laws are good and necessary. But hearts are not changed because a king issues a decree or because Congress passes laws. Hearts aren't changed unless they are changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how hearts are changed. And they think they can legislate obedience and respect through laws. One more thing to consider before we get to the main point. Verse 22 says he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every 
uh, province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Queen Vashti refuses just to be another trophy. She resists her husband. She's not going to give in. Why? Not 100% sure, but she resists nevertheless. And what is the result for her rebellion? It's exile. She's banished. Brothers and sisters, side point, not even close to being the main point, but something you and I need to understand. In our current culture, and I talked about this last week, in the month in which we are in, Pride Month, our culture is making it clear that to resist the sexual revolution, to resist this gender redefining a sexual free-for-all, to resist that will not be tolerated. It will not be tolerated. We went in a matter of just years, very quickly, I mentioned this last week, from let us live our lives how we want to you must celebrate, you must participate, and if you don't, you will be canceled, and if we have our way, you will be banished. You will lose your job, we will come for everything that we can. One author writes this, resistance is dangerous, and while it may not get you shipped off into a literal exile, it can certainly lead to a social one. Are you willing to stand upon the truth of God's word, to do it in love, to do it in grace, but to stand upon the truth? And if it means you are resisted and banished socially, are you still willing to stand for truth? Because God's word is clear when it comes to these issues. Now, the main point. Hopefully you've been holding on through all of that. That's setting you up for the main point, which we don't see explicitly here in the verses, but it's there throughout the story, and that is simply this, divine providence. Divine providence. Landon Dowd in his commentary writes, one of the greatest mysteries is how someone can do evil toward another, and yet God can simultaneously work whatever it is, whatever it is for the good of his providential plan. That somebody can do evil to someone and God, in his goodness and in his sovereignty and in his providence, can turn it and use it for good. Parents, ask your students about the life of Joseph. See what they remember. See what they listened to this week. And ask them to identify how God had his hand on Joseph's life even when it looked like God was nowhere to be seen. Because that story is incredible about God working behind the scenes and using what they meant to hurt him ultimately for their good and the glory of God. Ephesians 1.11 says, According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, Dowden in his commentary makes a really insightful observation. He points out that God uses a series of decisions made by the king and the queen that God neither initiated nor did he prevent, but still used to bring about his will. So just think about this. You have a drunk king. God doesn't make the king get drunk, nor does he prevent the king from getting drunk. The king gets drunk, and he makes a horrific decision, and yet somehow God uses that for his glory and for the good of his people. Think about the queen, the defiant queen. God didn't cause her to do that. She had free will. 
Nor did God prevent her. God didn't make her go. She made a choice. And God uses that in her being banished for his glory and the good of his people. The king gets enraged. God doesn't cause it. He doesn't prevent it. Just like he doesn't cause you to get angry or prevent you from getting angry. You have free will. You choose how you're going to respond in every situation. Yet God, because he's sovereign, can take his anger and still bring about the good of God's will. God uses foolish men and their decision. He doesn't cause it. He doesn't prevent it. Yet somehow he works it together for good. Hear me. God doesn't initiate any of these actions or any of these decisions. Yet in his providence, he uses a drunk king and a defiant queen to put Esther on the throne so his people will be saved. God does that. How? I don't have a clue how he does it. You will go out of your mind trying to figure out how God works always behind the scenes. Just know he's working. And as our students were reminded over and over and over this past week, just be faithful. And I love that. Study Joseph this week. And what do you see every step of the way? You see him being faithful. Even when he's wronged, he's being faithful. Be faithful to the king. This king thought he was all-powerful. In just a matter of a few years, we talked about he'll suffer this humiliating defeat. Right? His, his wife has been banished. He'll be down and depressed. What we know, though, is that there is only one who is all-powerful, whose kingdom will never end, who reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. And church, hear me. This king one day is coming for his people. And on that last day, he's going to throw a banquet. He's going to throw a feast, which is a key theme here in Esther. Ian DeGuide in his commentary says, But when God summons his bride, the church, to his banquet, he does so not to expose her to shame, but to lavish his grace and mercy upon her. He doesn't force sinners to come unwillingly to his feast, but he gently woos them. And draws them to himself. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, hear me. God is not going to force you to come. He's not going to force you to choose him. He's not going to force you to repent of your sins and to turn to him. But what he is going to do is he's going to woo you. He's going to draw you. He's going to call you. And right now, my prayer is, as you have sung the songs, as you, as you listen, to, listen to this sermon, that you are hearing the Holy Spirit draw you to himself. Draw you to Jesus Christ, who will save you, who will forgive you, who will redeem you, who will reconcile you to God the Father. This is the Jesus that we love and we serve. Listen to the guide one more time as we wrap this up. He says, consider what Christ has done for his bride. Far from regarding her as a beautiful object existing solely to feed his pride and pleasure, he took one who was by nature completely unattractive. And he gave himself for her, laying down his own life for his people. It was while we were still dead in our transgressions and sins that Christ gave himself for us, his life as a ransom for the ungodly. Everything we have, even the very righteousness in which we are clothed to appear before God, comes from his good hand. How can our hearts not be touched again with fresh love for a king who has loved us so freely and so graciously? 
with such a husband calling us, why would we not be delighted and overjoyed to come at his bidding? A king who has done so much for us can surely ask any level of obedience from us in response. And do you know the king? Do you know Jesus? Do you understand all that this king has done for you? That he laid down his very life for you. That's all that matters. That this king loves you. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. He loves you. He loves me. Not because we were beautiful, but because we were unlovable. Because we have rebelled against him. Because we have rejected him. He loves you. And hear me, this king, because of everything that he has done for you, has every right to demand my obedience and yours. Every right to say, if you want to know me and you want to follow me, then I want all of you. Your sexuality and your identity and everything that the world is trying to tear apart, I created it. I made it. I love you, and I want you to follow me. And this king is the one who is on his throne, ruling and reigning over all things. Look, some of you came in this morning and you are filled. You're filled with the Spirit. It has been an incredible week. Some of you, you come in low. You're down. You're discouraged. And wherever you are, hear me, this King will meet you there. He'll meet you there. But He's not going to force you to come there. He'll draw you. He'll woo you. And my prayers will run to Him. And you will find a loving Father who loves you more than anybody else could. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Father, your people come to you. God, one thing that's just been in my head nonstop these last several days is a song we sang at camp that just says, I depend on you. I depend on you. That you were the vine and I am the branches. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You're the resurrection and the life. And I depend on you. God, we come to you right now. Every single one of us must depend upon you. We trust in you. We trust in the promises of your word. We learn so much from Esther. And God, what we learn is that even when it seems like you're not there, when we can't see you, when things are spiraling out of control, you are firmly on the throne, ruling and reigning over us. And God, when we blow it and when we mess up, your grace is sufficient. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. God, this is who you are. And we praise you. And we pause just to worship you. And so as we sing this final song, Father, take this message. Take this broken, imperfect vessel. And God, speak powerfully through your people and to your people. Let me ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's worship.
board on the way out and pick up um, the little tags for VBS to sign up for the things for VBS. Uh, but before we're dismissed, just want to make you aware that on Friday, eight of us from Northside are going to be heading to Ecuador uh, to serve with the Yanceys uh, to do some work in a local community, a new community they're trying to get in and to, to share the gospel, so we're going to do some vacation Bible school, going to have some opportunities maybe to do some work at the local school, maybe uh, working on some of their desks, sanding them and refinishing them, an opportunity maybe to share the gospel with uh, their, the parents. Pastor Gary is going to be preaching uh, at the church on Sunday through the interpreter. Um, and so I just want you to be in prayer uh, for us. Let me just tell you who they are. I know several of them are not here um, this morning, but Miss Didi, Miss Didi is here. She's going. Didi, you just want to stand up so people just really quick, just stand really quick so people know who Didi is. There you go, there you go, really quick. I know you all don't know I'm doing it. Uh, Thea, Jerry, and Joey Carter. I don't think that they are here, but they're going. So be in prayer for them. Uh, Miss Emma, you can just real quick, just stand up real quick. There you go. Emma is going. Um, Pastor Gary, you got Gary, you know, and then and then Mark and then myself are are going, and so. Um, Paul's going to come um, and pray to finish our service, but also to pray for them. And so if you will, Paul, you can come on. So if you will just be um, in prayer uh, for us this week, we leave Friday and then we come back, we land early 
that next Friday, like at 5.30 a.m. Um, so just be in prayer uh, for us as we're gone. So if you'll stand, and as Paul prays, um, if you will, just kind of put your hands up, like symbolically as if you're laying hands on the eight of us that are going, um, and then just pray, pray for them while Paul closes us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this team that's going to Ecuador. Lord, I just pray that, uh, Lord, thank you for, for, first of all, that they've given a week of their life to, to go help the Yanceys and help Ecuador, our fellow Ecuadorian people that uh, they're going to be ministering to. Lord, please give them a safe trip, help them have good health, no distractions back home, uh, help them have good cheer the whole time, and uh, well, I just pray that you would you work through them and touch the hearts of the folks down there as they lead a vacation Bible school. Um, touch the hearts of the kids who in turn will hopefully touch the hearts of their parents for you. In Jesus' holy name I pray.